Well, as I flew back into Calgary this week, it was a wonderful occasion. I looked at this city that I love so much, the beautiful town, the mountains, the beautiful climate, and I thought, what wonderful people I have a chance to come and back and be part of. And now Jonathan has joined us again. And so it's especially good that he's here. We have... Thanks. Thanks, Jonathan. I appreciate that. <laughs> Robert and I had a chance last weekend to be in Victoria, which is, of course, another beautiful city in this wonderful country of ours. They were celebrating the 50th anniversary of, uh, it sounds funny, uh, the building of their building. They had a birthday party for their building. And uh, what had happened was that in 1966, they had a spring break campaign. A group came from Fried Hardeman and I think from uh, maybe ACU as well. Carl Spain, if anybody recognizes that name, uh, was there for a week. So they built that building and had a campaign. They had a number of people that were baptized. And so they had some, some old preachers come back and help celebrate their 50th for them. And so there were three of us that made a return to Victoria. And it was just a wonderful time, wonderful blessing. But it is good to be home. So I'm glad that we are. A number of things are going on this summer that you want to be aware of. Um, one is that next Sunday is our Stampede Sunday. It is going to be different than it has been in the past. We're not going to set up in the parking lot like we have before. We're going to eat downstairs instead. Same kind of menu. There will still be horses here. For those of you who are thinking, are there going to be horses? There will be. Uh, and so we'll do that. We'll have breakfast together. It all begins at 8.30. I know it says that our official starting time for our worship service is 10.10. It will be around 10.10 that we get going. But we'll have breakfast together at 8.30 anyway down in the gym. So please uh, don't hesitate, by the way, to invite friends to that. One of the reasons that we're doing this is because we never really felt like we had the, the, uh, the buy-in in terms of the community coming and being part of our assemblies the way we wanted them to be after the Stampede Sundays, the way they were, were typically set up. So we're going to try something a little bit new this year and see if this work for, works for us. So next week, 8.30 here, we'll still have breakfast. If you would like to volunteer still for that, please talk to Karina and Ed, and they can tell you all about what you can do in terms of Stampede Sunday and helping out. I also wanted to mention, you know, a lot of times during the summer, of course, people travel. And you're going to miss some Sundays while you're gone. And I wanted to just encourage you, when you miss those Sundays, to not forget about the fact that the church work is going to continue while you're gone. And so if you can make financial contributions, either in advance or plan for that when you get back or in the middle of it, whatever, maybe some of you had the automatic withdrawal that's going on and that's not a problem, then uh, please just remember that and don't forget the church family as you uh, head off and depart for all kinds of places this summer. Also, I wanted to mention this Saturday is the fishing Sunday. It's our fishing day. If you would like to go fishing next week at Crawling Valley Reservoir, you can talk to Darcy Pollock about that or talk to Mike. And uh, they will tell you all about how wonderful the fishing is. Last year, I rented a boat. My boat caught about 70 fish. The line from the weekend was, and Trina Coughlin said it, we're in the middle of this lake she's catching one after another and all of a sudden with huge eyes as if something demonic is going on she turns and she looks at me and she says what kind of lake is this <laughs> because she was catching fish after fish after fish so i can't guarantee that you're going to have a trina Coughlin experience next ne- next weekend but you might and you can uh, take advantage of that and then two two things which are not quite as pleasant uh 
to announce. Um, Michelle Muirhead's dad passed away on Friday. And we have been praying for him for a long time. Uh, I don't know, two, three, four years we've been praying for Michelle's dad. You've seen it in the bulletin time and time again. And he's just had a long, slow battle with things. And he finally expired on Friday. So please keep Mike and Michelle and their family uh, in your prayers. And then also, uh, I got a, an email just uh, within the last 24 hours or so that Francis's sister had passed away in Nigeria. So Francis Fasuba's sister has passed away also. And we want you very much to remember the Fasuba family and, uh, and all those who loved his sister. Uh, she has at least one small daughter uh, that is going to be left. And we need to be thinking about that family as well. In fact, why don't we just pray right now for these folks? Let's pray. Lord, we do pray your deepest blessings, your richest blessings on Mike and Michelle, Michelle and her family. In one sense, this has been expected. It's a long time in coming, and yet, God, you, you know, so many of us know that when it finally happens, it's still a shock. There's still that, that punch in the gut that happens when someone, even when we've known for a long time that they're, that they're going to pass from the, this earth, when it happens, it's hard. And so I'd pray that you'd bless the entire family with your comfort and peace. And then sometimes, Father, it's very sudden, like in the case of Francis's sister. And without warning, all of a sudden, there's a death. And so, Father, we pray that you'd be with Francis's family as well. Be with his sister's family in Nigeria. Give them all comfort and peace. And, Father, we look forward to a day at the end of time when we will see our loved ones again, when we will be resurrected with you together. And so, Father, we pray that you would come quickly, make that day a reality for all of us. We pray through Jesus. Amen. If you would turn in your pew Bibles to page 194, which is chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 7. Blair and Susan, it's good to see you. Good to have you here. If you don't know the Roberts, Peter's uncle... Long-time missionaries and servants of the Lord. Good to have them here this morning. Here's what happens in 1 Samuel 7. And all of this begins this new series that we're going to do for the remainder of the summer on not just the kings, but also Samuel in terms of the impact he has. And we're really talking in one sense about him today. We've got these great leaders in some cases... Not so great in others. And even in the lives of the great leaders, there are some struggles. In fact, one of the things that we're going to see in this series is just how human these people are. You know, we'd like to think that even David would be beyond some of the things that we would be tempted by. Or the things that would cause us to not walk with Jesus. But David was, like the rest, a human being and made mistakes. And in this case, in the story that we're looking at today, it's not just one person who struggles. It's actually a whole nation of people that struggles. And let me show you what I mean. 1 Samuel chapter 7, and I want to start with verse 2. It was a long time. Twenty years in all that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. 
Okay, so the whole nation mourns and seeks after God. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bales and their asterisks and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there, and there they confessed. We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mizpah. So the whole nation is repenting. They have sinned. And they recognize they've sinned. Samuel calls them on their sin, and so they repent. Verse 7. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them, and along the, and slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again. You know, we sometimes sing this song about, There I, what is it, There I lay my Ebenezer. I can't remember the exact words, but it's something like that. That's where that line comes from. Does somebody know that exact line? What's the exact line, Judy? Raise my Ebenezer, not lay my Ebenezer. Right, thank you. I'm pessimistic. I'm laying it down. The Lord is positive. He's raising it up. Okay, so here I raise my Ebenezer. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to her, and Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the power of the Philistines, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as judge over Israel all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel and all those places, but he always went back to Ramah where his home was, and there he also judged Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord. Now, if I was to just ask you right now, is this a positive time? Is this a good time? Is God blessing Israel at this point, or is he not? What do you think, church? Blessing. Yeah, you're all nodding. Positive. Raise up my Ebenezer. That's exactly right. Like, this is a good time. Samuel's doing his thing. He's judging the way that God wants him to judge. The people are repentant. They're responding positively to what God's doing. And God is blessing them. He's routed them against the Philist, or routed the Philistines against Israel. And good things are going on. But the fact is, it doesn't last for very long. When Samuel grew old, chapter 8, verse 1, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. So they're going to take their daddy's place. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they, Abijah, however you say this, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. 
not at all like Samuel, who, like in, outside of this, I don't think you ever read anything in the whole book of 1 Samuel, there is nothing negative ever said about Samuel, which is very unusual for a ruler in Israel, except for this. This is the only thing that I can think of that Israel, or that Samuel didn't do right. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, you are old, which I don't think is really a sin, by the way. I'm getting older and older as time goes by. You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us. And by the way, if you look in a footnote, at least in the NIV, it will say to judge us. And there's several places where the word lead gets translated as lead, but really it's judge Now appoint a king to judge us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. And then over the next few verses, Samuel warns the people what it's going to be like to have a king. Then I want you to look over at verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone go back to his own town. And then as it moves into chapter 9, they actually appoint Saul as king. So, Samuel's sons are bad judges. What would be the alternative besides a king? You've got bad judges. There have, Samuel's been a great judge. There were some bad judges before Samuel, but Samuel's come on the scene. He's been a great judge. But now his son's not so much. The people say, give us a king. And that certainly would not be their only option. What would be another option for them to choose besides, give us a king? Give us a judge. This is a choice that the Israelites could make. But instead of saying, give us a judge, they say, give us a king. The people want a king. I was thinking about parallels for this within the church, and I was thinking about it kind of like this. Is this not kind of like the Lord gave us elders, but we want a pope? And so give us a pope, the church says. And the Lord is saying, maybe that's not the best idea. But he gives us one. Or at least there is one. In the same way that the people wanted a king. And I'm not sure that that was a very good decision. I'm not sure that was a great decision then. I'm not sure it was a great decision now. Now the reason why it was so catastrophic then 
is because of what God says the choice really was. It wasn't that they just rejected Samuel and judging as a style of leadership. It's that they actually rejected the Lord. God is the one who established their system. In our case, God is the one who established our system. It's not hard to read in the New Testament where we have elders that govern over churches. It's pretty hard to find in the New Testament the rule of a pope. I've never seen it. Have you? And I'm not trying to be anti-Catholic today. I am trying to be what I hope is intensely biblical, even in things like church structures. And I think it's a really good thing when the church still this day says, what kind of leadership does God want us to have? And then we seek that kind of leadership. And the people then were seeking a kind of leadership that simply was not in line with what God wanted them to be seeking. In fact, God calls it idolatry. When a human being takes the place of God as a ruler of our lives, it's idolatrous. Well, all of that is a problem, but I don't know if that's the real issue. I want you to look at verse 5 first of chapter 8. Verse 5 says, They said to him, You are old, and your sons don't walk in, our, in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. They wanted to be like all the other nations. They looked around and they said, We've got Samuel, and he's not that good looking, and now he's getting old. He's getting kind of feeble. Wouldn't it be great if we had this striking specimen of a superman who could go before us and lead us? And then look over at verse 20. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and do what does it say? Fight our battles. Why is it that a people would want someone like that to go before them to fight, ultimately, their battles? And why is it that in the midst of that, God feels as though they're actually rejecting him as the one who's leading them? And my thought is that the Israelites are simply scared. More than anything else, They're scared. It's not just that they want to look like all the other nations. It's that they want someone to go before them who is going to lead them into battle, it says. Now, I want you to turn over quickly to chapter 12. We're going to go back to some other chapters, but go go to chapter 12, verse 12, and look at this. In fact, look up at verse uh, 8 in chapter 12. After Joab entered Egypt... Or sorry, after Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your forefathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. He's telling the story of Israel. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the land of Sisera, the commander of the, ar- the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord, and served the Baals and the Asterisks. But now deliver us from the hands of your enemies and of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord said, sent Jerob Baal, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, all judges, by the way, 
And he delivered you from the hands of your enemies on every side so that you lived securely. In other words, the Lord, in your time of trouble, kept sending judges as he recounts this history. But then look at verse 12. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now, here is the king that you have chosen. And so the bottom line here is that Israel was not just looking for this wonderful man to lead them into battle. They wanted this wonderful man to lead them into battle because they were scared to death. Nahash the Ammonite, how would you feel if Nahash the Ammonite was after you? That name just sounds nasty. I don't want anybody named Nahash coming and knocking on my door. And they were afraid. And because they're afraid, they start saying, we want someone else to rule us. And the fact is, we can all be like that at different times. Isn't it the case that maybe it's not someone named Nahash? Maybe it's just some circumstance that causes the church to rush into decisions, to make decisions that are absolutely human-oriented before we stop and pray, before we seek the Lord, before we ask God to be with us in the midst of a decision. You know, I've served now with lots of different elders in lots of different elderships. I have been for a time an elder. And I have watched over and over again as elders and elderships sometimes make decisions based on the pressures that they are perceiving around them and they do so with human wisdom. Thinking that they can just do this on their own. And sometimes we rush into decisions because Nahash the Ammonite is knocking at the door. And all the while, God simply wants us to trust Him and to pray and to not turn to human systems to construct something so that we can get ourselves out of this. All of that is ultimately a response to fear. And God doesn't want us to be fearful. And so this comes down in one sense to simply a question of God dependency. Israel chose not to be God-dependent. And the question is, is the church today going to make the same kind of mistake by not being as God-dependent as it needs to be? We need to depend on God. You know, I love Miles. I love Wayne. I love Francis. I'm so grateful for all of our elders I'm grateful that when we sit around in a meeting and Steve Ason is there, that he prays and he prays with confidence to the Lord. But these guys are not wise enough to do things on their own. I love them and they're wise, but they're not that wise. And I guarantee you that I'm not. Jonathan seems like he's getting there. 
We need so badly for God to be with us and to bless us as we are dependent on him. And you know what's interesting? You know the the way this is playing out right now is in the world of politics. Like, I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm a little bit, especially as a former, well, not a former American, I guess I'm still a U.S. citizen, but as one who now lives out of the country, I, I look at what's going on in U.S. politics and it's terrifying. Like, is there anybody here who thinks, yeah, that situation really looks good? They're doing well. Like Donald or Hillary, what, you know, they can't lose. I don't think any of us feel like that's the case. But there are Christians. There are Christians, people who follow Christ as their first allegiance and Jesus as their Lord, who act as though the person that they're about to put in office, whoever that might be, is the ticket. And it's hard to believe that they don't see what everybody else in the world sees and we're looking at it and going, those poor people, what are they going to do? Well, if they're the Christians, they need to be depending on God. I can't see very many similarities between Donald Trump and Jesus Christ. Jesus is a Savior. I don't see that in the Donald. And so we need to find ourselves constantly relying on him. And anything else is some form of idolatry that we carry out because, I think, of our fears. And, you know, people should be careful at times like this because if this story says anything to us, it's that you may just get what you hope for. And in this case, they got Saul. And this is not necessarily a great picture. Just imagine what's going to happen. Like in the United States with this election, they're going to get one of them. I think I'd rather have Saul. Well, you'd think after all of this that God would be so fed up with their rebellion. What is shocking to me almost, maybe just surprising, is God's response. When when children act foolishly, sometimes parents turn their backs on their children, but not usually. Usually they extend to their children grace and love. It's like the story of the prodigal son. He takes his inheritance, he squanders it, it's a bad decision, but his father still loves him. And I see the same thing happening here with Israel. Because this is a bad decision. This is not a good thing to say, we want a king. But I want you to look at what God's response to this is. Turn over to chapter 10. And look at verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? Now that's amazing. Samuel kisses Saul and proclaims him the anointed one. When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb. 
at Zelza on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys who set out to look for that you set out to look for have been found and now your father stopped thinking about them and is worried about you he's asking what shall i do about my son then you will go from there until you reach the great tree tree of tabor the three men going up to god at bethel will meet you there one will be carrying three young goats another three loaves of bread and another a skin of wine they will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread which you will accept from them after that you will go to gibeah of god now watch this language You will go to Gibeah of God where there's a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourines, flutes, harps, and being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you're to do. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. That is amazing. The people have made a horrible choice saying we want a king. God gives them a king who looks really good. He's seven feet tall. Or is he nine feet tall? No, I think it's Goliath that's nine. Saul's seven. I saw, I saw Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in the airport in Houston recently. If Saul was that tall, man, he was tall. He was good looking. He looked like the perfect specimen to be this king. He had nothing on the inside, lots on the outside. And so it looks like, at first, that God has said, okay, you want a good-looking king? I'll give you a good-looking king. And he's got nothing within him at all. You people are going to be really sorry that you made this decision. That's what I would have done. But what does God do? Appointing Saul turns out, by God, to be a total act of grace. I'm going to make you a prophet. I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to change your heart. You, Saul, are going to be a completely different person. And the only reason, and it's the same in this case as it is for you and me, the only reason why anybody is any different is because God has changed his heart and made him a different person. Now the fact is that just like we sometimes do, Saul later on makes some real boneheaded moves. But God, here at the beginning of Saul's reign, his appointment, actually performs this grace-filled act. Look at chapter 10, verse 26. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some troublemakers said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. This seems like... Like this is ex- so ironic. It's exactly the opposite of what you would expect. You would expect that those who mocked him would be on God's side because God didn't want him to be king anyway. 
you wouldn't think that God would give him specially anointed, spirit-filled men to be with him. You'd think he would get exactly the opposite. But God just keeps dispensing his grace. And then look at chapter 11, verse 6. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he burned with anger. And he then, at this point, acts like a leader. He acts like God's leader. And the whole reason he's able to do that is because God, for some absolutely unexplainable reason, has performed this incredible act of grace on Saul and the people, even though they are in the midst of rejecting him by the very act of choosing a king. And that's the kind of God we serve. And so I look at the church today and I think, man, sometimes we make some bad decisions. Sometimes we're not what God wants us to be. Even our leaders can make bad decisions at times. Aren't you grateful that in the midst of our bad decisions that God dispenses his grace? Aren't you grateful that even when we're not being what God wants us to be, that he dispenses his grace and blesses his people and he makes us able to rise up against, in one sense, our foes? Do you know who it is that he's fighting against in verse 6 of chapter 11? Nahash the Ammonite! The very one that they have been terrified by that causes them to say, we want a king. And then when they reject God, you'd think that if anything was going to happen to make this all just, that God would say, well, they wanted a king. Now I'm going to send Nahash the Ammonite in there. Watch them try and work now. And instead, God does exactly the opposite. And the man who isn't at all appropriate for the king of Israel becomes all of a sudden, a leader and ends up warring against and defeating Nahash the Ammonite, the very one they were scared of in the beginning. Now, at that point, you might think, well, I guess they did okay then. They wanted Saul to rise up and fight against Nahash the Ammonite. Good choice. It all worked out. But it all worked out because God is a God of grace who blesses his people even in the midst of our stupid decisions and so we're the prodigal son it looks like it shouldn't work it looks like we shouldn't have what we need at the end but god provides us with what we need because he loves us and is a god of grace god is going to continue to be gracious the question is are we going to make all the mistakes that force him to be gracious like that? Or can we respond positively as God's people from the outset, trusting in him even when Nahash the Ammonite comes and knocks on the door? I pray we can. Let's pray. Holy Father, neither Israel nor the Calgary Church of Christ always does your will. We, we need your grace. But God, we trust you that this is exactly what you dispense to us. Your love is everlasting. 
your grace knows no bounds. You keep taking us back. You keep blessing us despite ourselves. And Father, I just pray that every heart here will in response to you as such a gracious God respond in loving service because of what we constantly see you doing for us. Thank you for teaching us this story today through your word. And we pray that your spirit would be among us, that we would be transformed and changed in our hearts so that we would become different people before you. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.